0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt. As you probably know, on this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. Uh, We have a great show for you here today, so I want to dive right into it because it's absolutely packed. If you live anywhere near a military base or a major airport, you need to listen up right now to the conversation we're about to have because it is very possible... Your area and water in your area is contaminated as a result of the use of toxic firefighting foam that is used by uh, the armed forces and by a lot of firefighting units around major airports for training and, and tests to put out fires. Uh, this contamination has been found in uh, Dayton, Ohio. It's been found in Camp Lejeune here in North Carolina, Fort Bragg. It's been found in Colorado at Peterson Air Force Base there. It's, I mean, it's everywhere. They're they're looking at about 400 different bases where there's possible firefighting foam contamination. It's a kind of contamination that's related to Gen X, which we've talked about a lot on the show, uh, but it's kind of everywhere. Uh, they spray it on the on the airfields, and then it gets into... Groundwater and sometimes surface water. Important conversation. So I spoke with Sharon Lerner. She is an investigative reporter with The Intercept. She's looked deeply, deeply into this issue and she told us a little bit more about it. Here it is. So you reported that the US military is spending billions of dollars to clean up drinking water contaminated with a toxic firefighting foam, a triple F. Tell me about, uh, A, what AFFF is, and and why it's dangerous, and where they're cleaning this up.
1: Okay. AFFF stands for aqueous film-forming foam, and it's the kind of foam that is very effective for putting out jet fuel fires. Um, it was developed in the 1960s by a company called 3M in conjunction with the U.S. Navy. And together, they um, created this foam that, that basically coats um, fires that can come from jet fuel and other chemicals and are hard to put out with water. And using this foam, um, it's you, know, you can put them out fairly quickly, which is really important for um, many military situations. Um, and it was since uh, the late 1960s has been adopted by many parts of the military and also by uh, commercial airports and many, many places around the country and around the world. Unfortunately, um, one of the ingredients in this film is uh, what's called a fluorinated surfactant. It's something that makes the foam spread easily across the flames. And fluorinated means that, that basically the chemical they use to make it spread is made from uh, carbons bonded to fluorines. Usually in the very beginning when 3M was applying this foam to the Navy. It was a chemical called perfluoroocta. Uh, I'm not going to get it right. Is PFOs and PFOs was uh, has since been removed from the market. It is a part of a group of chemicals known now as PFAS. And as I said, it, it's chain of carbons bound to fluorine atoms. So PFOS was eventually uh, replaced by some other chemicals that are very similar and um, because there have been various iterations of the foam over the years. But uh, in the decades that this foam has been used, it's used to put out uh, many fires, but it's also been used in many more instances to train firefighters and others in the military. Um, And in its many applications, um, it has seeped into ground and water at hundreds of military bases and also commercial airports around the country and again around the world and created a huge drinking water problem again in the country and the world by seeping into water supplies. Um, It was very hard to remove and and so the detection of these chemicals is still going on and the cleanup is just beginning. He's done a lot of reporting on
0: uh, PFOS, PFOA, C8, uh, Gen X contamination in the context of uh, industrial chemical dumping with regard to DuPont and Chemours, who who produce this stuff for water-resistant products and things like that. And I know you know we've talked a lot on our show about the the dupont kimors transition from um, C8 to Gen X. And it seems like that's mm-hmm. kind of the parallel that's taking place here. DoD has moved from super super dangerous PFOS to this other thing that they're claiming is environmentally friendly that is actually also mm-hmm. really dangerous that's that's another thing that struck me about what you have reported is the the what appears to be a, a a long decades decades long history of deception on the part of the chemical industry with regard to the safety of of both PFOS originally and then also the, the newer iteration of it is that accurate
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, so, you know, there's a lot there. The transition from PFOA to Gen X, um, as you know, DuPont phased out, uh, and and, uh, eight uh, chemical companies in total phased out PFOA uh, in two, um, there was officially the deadline was 2015. But for DuPont, what they did was they, as they were, phasing out PFOA, they were phasing in Gen X, which I know has become a huge issue for you, you guys down there. Um, it's, you know, what's complicated about this. And when you look at the, um, when you look at the documents involved, uh, in the 2009 introduction of Gen X as a, you know, a formal product with, with the EPA, you can see that, um, it's not out and out dishonesty, you know it's more a spinning of an interpretation of the science um, you know compounded by a secrecy so if you you know they e p a ends up uh conditionally essentially approving Gen x with the requirement that certain tests be done, and the tests are done um and and i uh ended up writing about some of those tests when I first reported on, on Gen X and, uh, a couple of years ago when, before it was found in North Carolina and it found that, you know, DuPont had done the test that it promised to do, but those tests actually found that it caused some of the same problems that PFOA does. And they did what they were supposed to do. They handed it in to the EPA. What did the EPA do though? They followed them away and nothing happened. Um, with the replacements for uh, the perfluorinated chemicals in uh, firefighting foam, and what they're doing in the military is they're phasing out PFOA and PFOS and phasing in these shorter chain replacements that are basically based on C6 and shorter chemicals. Um, and it's this very slow hulking process because it's the the whole military, uh, lots of you know. Lots of bureauc- bureaucratic sort of hurdles in this process, but as they're slowly slowly doing this, it's become quite obvious, I think to most people in the scientific community that the shorter chain chemicals, much like Gen x have and, and Gen Genx, we should say is also a shorter chain chemical, have the same problems um and not and so but it does get complicated in that you know they they have a leg to stand on when they can when they're trying to say. It is safer in that they last for uh, shorter times in the body, perhaps, in some cases, not all cases, for these shorter chain chemicals. The problem is that if you're going to continue to be exposed to them, as we all are, it doesn't really matter if it exits your body, continually reentering your body. And besides that, there's no need for us to be exposed to that. We can get to that soon. But the other thing is that all of these chemicals, regardless of the, the length of their chain, persist indefinitely in the environment. And that's that's a huge issue as we begin to understand their uh, the range of toxic effects they have on humans <clears throat> and animals. You know, it's it's really important to try to wrap our heads around what it means to be and introducing these chemicals into natural nature and humans that will last forever.
0: Right and I I've, I've read reports that they've you know they've discovered perfluorinated compounds in the brain tissue of polar bears in Greenland and, yes. and scientists estimate yes. you know that, that that these chemicals will outlast the human race. Um, uh, they they will. they just they yes. don't break down. And and we only are, are touching on a couple of the kinds of molecules within these um, you know the the PFOS family here, and one thing that you wrote was that the Department of Defense is they're addressing the PFOA and PFOS FOS uh, contamination in in their cleanup efforts, but not necessarily other chemicals. Is that right?
1: Right, other perfluorinated chemicals. Right. 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 And what I, what is important to um, understand about the the military? Uh, situation. And, and so I, I wrote recently, and I guess this is what you're referring to, a piece came out a month or two ago about the firefighting foams. And it ended up being an incredibly long piece because it's very complicated to explain both the really long use of uh, these chemicals and... Um, the influence of the industry groups representing both the firefighting foam makers and the the people, the manufacturers of the surfactants. And these guys came together and formed an industry group called the Firefighting Foam Coalition that developed a very close relationship with folks at the Navy who were overseeing the use and approval of AFFF over the years. And so what happened is that they were able to advise the military on uh, foam and on the use of chemicals. And in the very beginning, when AFFF was first introduced, it really was the best thing, to uh, the best way to, to save lives when it came to these chemical fires and jet fuel fires. Um, And that was in the 60s. But uh, over time, other safer alternatives were introduced. And also, you know, (laughs) over time and, and people within the Navy, and I write about this in my piece, suggested, hey, you know, way back suggested, well, listen, we don't know what the environmental effects are of these chemicals. And at a certain point, they actually did know that there were some environmental effects. And they said, you know, maybe it makes sense to not use these for training <laughs> purposes and only for emergencies. Uh, that kind of precaution w- wasn't taken. And, and along the way, the industry is saying, you know, this is the only way, uh, the safest way to do it. And it, well, they're saying in terms of prevent protecting lives and also that there, there really aren't environmental problems. Well, it turns out, uh, Certainly, there are environmental problems, which I think now we all know. But I think very few people knew and understood that there really were alternatives. Um, And yet the Navy uh, in 2004 was actually testing some alternative foams that performed almost as well. Not quite as well. Uh, They were nine seconds off the, the... uh, what they, you know, their 30 second requirement for putting out flames. But I ended up talking to many, many folks in the firefighting industry who said uh, that in terms of water spray, there was no difference between these two products. And the, uh, what's called fluorine free foam, this alternative foam, is now virtually. Uh, Performance wise, the same as the foam with these dangerous chemicals in it. Uh, And as a result, around the world, many, many um, airports and, and companies and even some militaries have actually adopted this foam while, you know, so while we're here, like kind of swapping in these slightly different chemicals, Many people around the world have have made a much safer choice.
0: Yeah, I was I was going to ask you what other countries uh, uh, were doing. I th- you wrote about uh, a British Airways Airbus that that caught fire uh, at Heathrow, I believe, in London uh, mm-hmm. in 2015, where they had they had no no injuries using the fluorine-free uh, product, and and additionally uh, a bonus was you know they have fewer cleanup costs
1: or concerns related to that. Like none, <laughs> right? Because they're not putting these—they're not putting these these uh, permanent, you know, chemicals into the ground. So yeah, it's a whole—it's it, a much preferable way of doing things, and that's. But you know, we're not there yet. Do we even know how many chemicals
0: are in the foam that we're using currently?
1: Um, no. It, I mean, it's clearly so. You know, right now the Department of Defense has identified PFOS and PFOA too that, you know, it's tracking and theoretically beginning to clean up. And that's because the EPA has really mostly focused on two, PFOS and PFOA. Um and it's so you take a step back and now there are when you actually look at the testing, EPA is testing for sometimes 14, sometimes 24. Uh, but when you uh, when I talked to um, Chris Higgins, who's a scientist who studies this contamination, and he's analyzed some of the wastewater at these sites where AFFF was used, it's not 2 and it's not 14 and it's not 24. Um, there are actually hundreds of these chemicals there. He said that there are between 30 and 50 that are sort of the primary, uh, primarily present, but there are more than that. Um, so, it's, it's been um, eye-opening. There are actually thousands of PFAS uh, in use just already in, in the world. But in, in firefighting film, in terms of major ingredients, it seems to be between 30 and 50.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I think uh, that helps us uh, begin to kind of get, a, get our arms around understanding the issue uh, as I've as I've mentioned to folks, your your work not just on the firefighting foam, but on you know the the all of these um, chemicals and compounds has been extensive and really really thorough, and it's absolutely a go to resource for people who uh, who want to to learn more about the issue and, and get up to speed on it. So, thank you for all the work yeah, that thanks. you've put into this. It's been incredible.
1: Thank you so much. And I would just say the easiest way to find it, if anybody is trying to find it, we have like a separate page for that series on The Intercept called, they Google The Intercept and Teflon Toxin. It'll pop up and they can look at it.
0: Teflon Toxin at The Intercept. Perfect. How about Twitter? Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm at Fast Learner, but there's no A in Learner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Sharon, for talking to us today. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. My pleasure. Take care.
0: Bye. Thank you so much to Sharon for speaking with us. Uh, We have got a lot more in store for you today. When we come back, we're going to be discussing private security firms and what their role has been in suppressing opposition to pipeline construction and now getting into emergency responses to natural disasters, uh, some of which are exacerbated by climate change. So there's a weird kind of connection between suppressing people who are opposing things that would prevent climate change and then profiting from uh, the natural disasters exacerbated by climate change. It's a really interesting discussion uh, with Aline Brown, a reporter who's been looking into it. We are also going to have a panel in the studio to talk about Some awesome book recommendations. International Children's Book uh, Day is coming up on April 2nd, and World Book Day is coming up later in April. And we're going to discuss some of our favorite children's books related to the environment, science, social justice, that kind of thing, as well as adult-level books. And Matthew Starr, riverkeeper, is here. He's going to give us a couple of his recommendations, and we'll have some other people in here too. What do you got?
2: Stay tuned. It's going to be really fun. Yeah?
0: Something good? Yeah. All right. He might even read a passage from a book. It's going to be fantastic. Um, So, you are listening to The Dirt on WSHA-FM. We are 88.9 in Raleigh, 102.1 in Rocky Mount, and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We're going to take a break and be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to The Dirt. A reminder that you can find our show on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Just search for The Dirt. You can also find us on Twitter at TheDirtFM. Uh, we'd love it if you you know, uh, reviewed the show and followed us on Twitter, it would be fantastic. I want to turn uh, now to a new subject, one that doesn't really get a whole lot of conversation, international militarized private security firms profiting from both suppressing efforts to stem climate change as well as from emergency relief efforts necessary in the wake of natural disasters exacerbated by climate change. I spoke with The Intercept's Aline Brown about one such firm, headquartered here in the Triangle, that played a role in the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, and and also in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew down here in North Carolina, here's what she had to say about it. Tiger Swan. It is a mercenary security company best known for, as you write, efforts to suppress indigenous led resistance to the Dakota Access oil pipeline. So, and, and listeners here are probably interested in knowing that they are, they're based out of Apex, North Carolina, which is just a stone's throw from, from where we broadcast uh, in downtown Raleigh. Give us a little more background about Tiger Swan. What its role in that fight was. What its origins are. Um, just, just let us know who they are.
3: Sure. So Tiger Swan is a private security firm that was fin- founded by um, this commander of the elite special operations unit Delta Force, James Reese. Um, so Reese has staffed this company. Um, you know, heavily with ex-special ops military members um, and, you know, mili- military members of other backgrounds as well, um, you know, much of their work has been abroad, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, in, in 2016, they got a contract to provide security for the Dakota Access Pipeline um, for energy transfer partners, the pipeline parent company. Um, You know, they uh, they were hired to kind of manage this half dozen or so security companies that that were on the ground um, in. North Dakota, Iowa, Illinois, and South Dakota. Um, and the intercept, um, where I'm a reporter, uh, received a leak of about 100, more than 100, uh, daily situation reports to describe the work that they were doing every day. And, um, and really the intelligence that they were gathering on the activities of, um, these protesters, um, so what the documents show is that um, the the Tiger Swan operatives were really seeing this movement through a military lens. You know, um, one of the documents describes the movement as an ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component, and you know compares the um, water protectors at, to um, kind of jihadist insurgents. Um, you know, their analysis was, was something that they shared with law enforcement. Um, you know, we also, my colleague Will Parrish, um, received more than 1,000 documents through public information requests that show that versions of these reports were shared with um, with law enforcement. So they were really trying to influence the way that uh, public officials were behave- behaving, Um you know, the documents describe aerial surveillance, radio eavesdropping, as well as infiltration of camps and activist circles. So, you know, TigerSwan operators posing as uh, water protectors and entering um, these protest spaces. Um, you know, they were also sharing equipment with law enforcement. Um, you know, we know that they were sharing a live video feed at one point that the, that that um, the security company had obtained via, um, I believe it was a helicopter. Um, and they also shared vehicles, you know, for example, little four wheelers. Um, Tiger Swan also engaged in um, a type of propaganda campaign. Uh, they were, uh, in their reports, they mentioned um, working with this guy that created you know, essentially fake news. He created a Facebook page where he was posing as um, kind of, you know, bizarro news anchor and um, providing, you know, he he said his goal was to provide local Iowans with updates on, um, you know, the, the activities of local um, pipeline protesters. Um, you know, so this was really an extensive operation that involved on the ground security personnel, social media monitors and um and all kinds of different layers. Um yeah, so that's what that's what Tiger Swan is.
0: Well, that's incredible. Um and now, and so that that was during during that fight, now you have come out with a report recently um, indicating that Tiger Swan is getting involved in basically emergency response uh, with regard to natural disasters like uh, Puerto Rico Hurricane Matthew here in North Carolina and other other kind of major natural disasters, which um, and and you write and I, I think this is just so spot on. They have quote. Tiger Swan has gone from suppressing a movement seeking to slow climate change to marketing itself as a company that can help clients survive climate change's most severe consequences. Tell me more about that. Tell me first, uh, you know, what is their involvement in North Carolina in in, in the post Hurricane Matthew, North Carolina, and then and certainly in uh, Puerto Rico as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that you know, these companies are really built to profit off of disasters of different kinds. So it's natural that they would be interested in getting a piece of this market, um, you know, related to climate disaster. So, um, you know, in the last couple months, they've been heavily promoting um, their capabilities in terms of disaster relief in these blog posts, um, so in North Carolina, they describe, um, as you mentioned, working uh with emergency responders in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew. Um, so they say that they co-located with law enforcement and emergency managers for 17 days at the state emergency response center, um, you know, kind of providing resources such as tracking devices, satellite phones. Um uh, and and other resources um, to um, to support the North Carolina National Guard personnel um, state highway patrol units um, and other you know rescue teams um, you know we asked the uh, the, the North Carolina um, Emergency management department what their collaboration with Tiger Swamp like and the spokesperson said that the agency had used Tiger Swan's technology on a test basis twice. You know, placing tracking devices on some vehicles during winter storms in early 2016 and during Hurricane Matthew. Um, you know, the the department said there there is no contractual relationship with Tiger Swan. They were paid the flat right to. Rate to use this system on those two occasions um, and haven't been used since. Um, you know, but I think that there are questions about how, you know, how Tiger Swan has worked with the North Carolina state government in the past. And it's something that's certainly worth looking into um, as, you know, this pipeline fight. Um, this local pipeline fight heats up, Um, you know, the technology that they were pushing um, is this thing called guardian angel. Um, Essentially it's a a tracking platform. So in its simplest form, you can download this app on your phone and how your son will sort of track you. And so if you get in trouble, you can hit this um, sort of like panic button and, Ostensibly, someone from Tiger Swan will make sure that you get relief. So, you know, instead of dialing 911, you would be calling Tiger Swan. Um, you know, we've talked to some former Tiger Swan um, contractors that say that the app did not work so well and they used it in uh, North Dakota. Um, there's another form of Guardian Angel that's sort of like devices that. Can be attached to vehicles or sensitive shipments again, for the purpose of kind of tracking um, location. Um, but yeah, I mean that's just what they're promoting publicly. It's I, I think it's important to remember that we would know very little about what Tiger Swan was doing in um, in the Dakota Access Pipeline fight if there hadn't been this leak. You know, we would know next to nothing. In fact. You know, Tiger Swan didn't even have a license to operate as a security firm in uh, in North Dakota during all of this. They're now facing a lawsuit um, in in North Dakota uh, brought by the the private security licensing board um, for for not ever obtaining this license. You know, Tiger Swan has denied that they even provided security state security services in North Dakota, despite, you know, this huge body of evidence that suggests they did. They, they've said that they provided IT consulting and um, management services. So, yeah. So I think that it's important to really scrutinize what they say they're doing.
0: Wow. And, and not just Tiger Swan. there are other private security firms as well. That And it sounds like uh, from some of the reporting you describe in Puerto Rico, that these these kind of out-of-state firms, um, they don't identify who they are. There are concerns about, you know, trampling on uh, the rights of uh, folks who are living in the places where they're showing up. Uh, definitely sounds like something that needs um, a lot more transparency.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's a point that... Um, an attorney from the Center for Constitutional Rights underlined um, for me that, you know, in, in these crisis scenarios, um, accountability is frequently sort of like swept away. You know, when everyone's sort of just responding, um, it's there's a lot less uh, accountability for, for the various actors, both private and public that come swooping in. Um, so yeah, Puerto Rico certainly, you know, we know that tiger swan, um, was, was working there to some degree, uh, you know, providing their, um, their guardian angel services to various actors on the ground. Um, but you know, there were many other private security firms there as well. And, um, like you said, there's there's little transparency as to who exactly they are and what exactly um, they're allowed to do. Um, and you know, in terms of uh, private security assigned to pipelines in the U.S., um, Tiger Swan has been having some trouble um, getting. Getting the license, you know, in Louisiana, for example, they have attempted to get a license to work as a security firm, but were denied this license application uh, because of what happened in North Dakota. Um, and so, you know, even if Tiger Swan fails to get the licenses it needs, the contracts it needs to continue doing the type of work it did in the Midwest, um, someone else will step in in their place. You know, maybe it will be a firm that is hiring uh off-duty police officers instead of military members um but that raises other kinds of questions about the blurred lines between the public and private um spaces
0: absolutely and we've got as uh as i'm sure you know the atlanta coast pipeline which they're beginning to cut trees uh, in north carolina to prepare for the full construction of that uh, It remains to be seen what kind of a protests there will be or whether or not a firm like that could be brought in um you know in the next year or so with regard to that issue uh and that and that was going to be another question is you know it's not just tiger swan it's it's the it's the this whole concept of the private security firm and what they're being utilized for are there other specific firms that you know we should be looking out for or do you know um you know what what the future of tiger swan holds um Beyond its current troubles,
3: um, I mean, I think that whoever's working on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, you know, you, there there should be a close eye on on what they're doing. Um, you know, the thing is, Tiger Swan, like we don't know how Tiger Swan is going to respond to you know, whatever difficulties they're having entering this market. Um, you know, what we've seen for other companies like, um, Blackwater, for example, this, uh, sort of notorious private security firm, um, manned by military ex-military, uh, personnel is that they just changed their name a couple times, you know, so maybe Tiger Swan will try that. Maybe it won't be Tiger Swan. Maybe it'll be someone else. Um, you know, the name isn't, all that matters. And I think, um, you know, I'm not sure what uh, private security licensing looks like in North North Carolina. It's very different from state to state, but it's worth, um, looking into who's getting licenses and, and what can be discerned about, um, about how the companies, um, are staffed but again it's there's just not much transparency in this industry um you know it we saw in North Dakota also that some companies were sort of operating under under multi, multiple layers of management like there would be sort of this shell company that paid the personnel but then the personnel understood themselves to be working for some other company and another company was getting the license in the state it's just very opaque so yeah um it's a tough a tough thing to watch carefully without a whistleblower right right absolutely
0: okay well thank you very much for um filling us in about tiger swan and where can we find more of your work because you've done a lot of work on this particular issue
3: um, yeah, so you can find my work at theintercept.com. Um, all of our Tiger Swan reporting, which I did with two other reporters, Ali Chase Ferry and Will Parrish, um, can be found under our this oil and water heading. So, yeah, if you search oil and water, The Intercept, you'll find our full twelve-part series. Fantastic! Everybody should check that out. All right,
0: uh, I appreciate it, Aline. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
3: Yeah, thanks
0: so much for having me. Thanks again to Aline. Uh, It was a fascinating conversation and definitely will uh, stay on that subject as we continue uh, the show in the months ahead. Uh, We're going to shift gears quite a bit going into the next segment. I think it's been pretty heavy so far. So we're going to lighten it up a little bit and we're going to talk about some books, uh, some kids' books, some adult books. Uh, Matthew, are you vocally warmed up? Are you,
2: cause, yes, I have my reading voice ready. Okay, because we're going to do some like kind of I'll reading rainbow. I'll James Earl Jones here, really.
0: Well, <laughs> all right. We'll go to a break. Thanks, y'all. Welcome back. We are headed into the final segment of the show today, so thank you for sticking with us. We're going to close out with something fun, something that I I think is fun anyway. Uh, Coming up on April 2nd is International Children's Book Day, and April 23rd is World Book Day. So I thought it would be great to bring in some folks to talk about their favorite kind of environmental science, social uh, justice-themed books for children and for adults. So in the studio, joining me to talk about some of our favorite books, we have Grady McCauley, Policy Director with the North Carolina Conservation Network. Hello, Grady. Good morning. Happy birthday, Grady. I know you hate it when people say that, but I'm <laughs> going to tell you anyway. Happy birthday. Uh, Beth Messersmith, the Senior Campaign Director for Moms Rising in North Carolina, is here. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. And the aforementioned Matthew Starr, your Upper News Riverkeeper, is in here as well. Uh, thank you all for being here. So, uh, International Children's Book Day... Some background on this. The day has been around since 1967. It occurs on April 2nd. Uh, Some trivia for you. That is Hans Christian Andersen's birthday. Uh, Listeners are probably familiar with his fairy tales, whether whether or not they know it. Uh, He wrote The Little Mermaid, The Emperor's New Clothes, The Ugly Duckling, just to name a few of them. Uh, And all of my guests here today are parents. So I've asked each of you to come with a recommendation for a children's book, Um, and you know, something you like and to maybe read a passage from these books, I think that would be cool. So we're just going to have a kind of public radio version of reading rainbow. Um, Matthew, let's go ahead and start with you. Yes. What, what, what what book are you recommending for the kids today?
2: So it's, it's a great book that you, you can check out at any local library. I got this one from the Wake County library right by my house. It's a wonderful book. It's a, it's, geared it's, it's picture-heavy geared to um, to be read to young children and, and it's a book about the water cycle well, what's it called who wrote it well, well, I'm getting there it's uh water is water and it's written by Miranda Paul and it has wonderful illustrations by Jason Chen and the whole premise is to take something fairly complicated like the water cycle and make it fun and enjoyable and easy to understand and the passage i'll read is just just the beginning of the book which i think um good no spoilers it's wonderful yes yes i won't ruin the end of, of the water cycle for anyone okay drip sip pour me a cup water is water unless it heats up whirl swirl watch it curl by steam is steam unless it cools high a dragon in a wagon a crow kneading dough Clouds are clouds unless they form low. And it has these wonderful illustrations. Um, you can really understand how water works, the three different stages of water, how it can be fun. Uh, it goes on to talk about fog and playing in mud puddles and, and really just enjoying the water that we have. And that's why it's so important for someone like myself to fight and to advocate for clean water so that we can do these fun things.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic choice. Uh and that was an excellent reading. And and just so listeners think, uh don't think that I'm not self-aware, I realize that radio is perhaps not the best format to be discussing picture books. Uh however, I think there is a poetic quality to uh to the words uh and I think that you know when people go and and up these books and look for them they'll see uh how beautiful some of these illustrations are and, and we'll try to tweet uh some some photos of them and, and things like that the dirt fm on twitter follow us so let's move on beth what do you have for us
4: i have kids ran the world by leo and diane dylan and it is um i have lots of favorite children's books i have a 12 year old and a nine year old but i love this one because um it gives me hope And it's such a, it's an expression of what the world could be. And I think that that's what books, to me, bring out the best of. Um, It gives you a sense of power and the possibilities. And I like this one because it shows that kids can have a voice and, and make things different, too. So, And the, the illustrations are so really rich and diverse, and they show many different kinds of kids from many different places um, coming together to make something better.
0: That's great. And, I mean, the national conversation recently has been very much centered around empowering youth and the power of, of hope and, and kids and, and youth in general. So it's a great choice. Do you want to read a passage? Sure.
4: Um, it starts off by talking about the many different things kids would do differently than maybe the way we as adults do them. And uh, it ends with this. If kids ran the world, would these things be possible? Yes, we think so. Because kids know that everyone can learn to share. Kids know how to try to do their very best. And kids know that the most important thing in the world isn't money or being king or queen or pushing other people around. It's love. Giving it. Sharing it. Showing it. And that's why if kids ran the world, we'd make it a wonderful place for everyone to live.
0: Grown-ups, too. I like it. I like it a lot. Grady, you're up.
5: So the Brook. The book that I brought today is a book called Pond Circle. It was published in 2009 by Betsy Franco with the illustrations by Stefano Vitale. Uh, And it's, uh, well, I'll read a passage. It's basically um, a this is the house that Jack built type story. And each page builds on the page before. So here's one from about the middle of the book. This is the skunk, the shy striped skunk, that caught the snake, that swallowed the frog, that gobbled the beetle, that ate the nymph that nibbled the algae, that grew in the water that filled the pond by Anna's house. And the the there are two reasons I like this book. One of them is that as it builds, what you get is actually a food web. So it's a way of introducing the concept of the food web that, that the plants at the bottom are eaten by animals and going up the food chain. Um, and and then I, I won't spoil it to see where it ends at the top. Uh, and then the other reason I like it is you you can't see this as I'm talking about it, but the pictures in this book um, are done in oil on wood, on plywood, and you know how plywood has ripples in it of darker and lighter color, and the they come through the oils, so um, whenever there's water in the background or sky in the background, you see those ripples, and they form the ripples in the surface of the water or clouds in the sky, and so it's just a really elegant book as well.
0: That's fantastic, and I think before I mention mine, I think as I'm looking around at all these books, these are all uh, geared for about the same age group, um, early childhood, um, it's not young adult or anything like that these are you know your typical children's picture books kind of thing yeah these but.
5: would work like age probably two to, to eight or so. yeah okay
0: would we'll you say I mean that's if kids are in the world that's for all ages I think it's it really
4: is good. and we actually did a workshop we have a Martin Luther King celebration over at Northgate Mall with about 3,000 folks every year and we did a workshop on this and the kids um, from Durham the triangle built out what their vision of the world would look like and so that worked from about you know three to 13, 14.
0: Oh, that's fantastic so. Same with yours, Matthew.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's maybe towards a younger, younger crowd. Um, but it's definitely what I like about all these books, and not not going to spoil what you're about to share is the connectivity that they all have. And so, whether you're you're two or, or eight or thirteen, it shows how we're all interconnected with our environment.
0: And you all other. have you all you all have wonderful reading voices. I, I hope that you're out there taking some time to read to kids, not just your own, but other people too. And for listeners, that's a fantastic way to spend your time and get involved in the communities to to volunteer your time reading to kids. Because personally, I think there's nothing better. Um, the book that I chose is is pretty cliche, but I don't care. Uh, I I love it. It's one of my favorites. It surely most people have already heard of it. It is The Lorax. Uh, by Dr. Seuss. And I'll, I'll read just a bit of it. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Lorax, uh, it is about a, um, well, essentially, it is about a man who decides that there's a, a tree that he can use to make a product. And he comes in and he chops down all the trees to make this product and builds a big factory and pollutes the heck out of the environment there. And in the middle of all this, he's visited by a kind of wood sprite called the Lorax who is telling him, you got to stop. You're going to ruin everything. If you chop down all of the trees and you're driving away all the wildlife and everything's ruined because of you, please stop. You're being greedy. Uh, And this uh, gentleman who's making the products, his name is the one And and this was his response to um, the Lorax, Lorax, Lorax. I said, there's no cause for alarm. I chopped just one tree. I am doing no harm. I'm being quite useful. This thing is a thneed. A thneed is a fine something that all people need. It's a shirt. It's a sock. It's a glove. It's a hat. But it has other uses. Yes, far beyond that. You can use it for carpets, for pillows, for sheets, or curtains, or covers for bicycle seats. The Lorax said, Sir, you are crazy with greed. There is no one on earth who would buy that fool thneed. As it turns out, the Lorax was wrong. Lots of people did buy thneeds, but uh there were dire consequences you can pick up the book and read it i don't want to spoil it but i think you can guess what they were um you know i i picked i picked this book because not only does it talk about the need to um to manage our ecosystem environment natural resources responsibly it also hits on themes of uh corporate greed and exploitation uh which i think it's never too early to begin um learning those lessons and, and instilling um values that are that are contrary to those kinds of things but um thematically you know the the Lorax is talking about tearing down um the truffle tree forest in this um fictional landscape and so that segues into the uh adult level reading book that I chose uh which is a novel by Annie Pru called Barkskins. Skins um She is, if you're not familiar with Annie Proulx, she's an incredible novelist. Uh, She won a Pulitzer in 1993 for her novel, The Shipping News. Uh, People are probably more familiar with her short story, Brokeback Mountain, which was turned into um, uh, an award-winning film. And uh, probably most of you recognize that. But Barkskins, which came out just a couple of years ago, is this epic book that crosses generations of people descending from a pair of 17th century French woodcutters in the New World in what is now Canada. Uh, And uh, one of these men, they're kind of indentured servants. One one is forced to marry an indigenous woman um, and the other escapes servitude to become a fur trader and then later sets up a timber business. And the book kind of covers the descendants of each of these men over the course of 300 years. Um, some of the people involved are laborers in the timber industry. Some are struggling with the devastation uh, wreaked upon their cultures and ancestral homes at the hands of uh, invasive, uh, other invasive cultures and clear-cutting industries. Uh, and, then, and then there are perspectives from the other side of that coin, the businessmen who are looking for new trees to cut and who are experiencing... Uh, the dangers of living kind of on the the frontier and the edges of society, but the across it all is this, this backdrop of the world's forests uh, and uh, the characters mistaken mistaken belief or kind of willful willful ignorance that the forests don't end and that they cannot be depleted, uh, which is echoed in the very some of the very first scenes when they are arriving in the new world. And there's one particular quote in the very beginning. Uh, One of these two men who's arrived in the new world, he looks and he asks, how big is the forest? And uh, the response is, it is the forest of the world. It is infinite. It twists around as a snake swallows its own tail and has no end and no beginning. No one has ever seen its farthest dimension. And that belief that this natural resource cannot ever be depleted uh, is is what these characters um continue to return to throughout uh the novel until modern day in, at which they begin to be faced with the realities of that mistaken understanding, so I definitely recommend it bark skins by annie Peru, um and now we'll turn to matthew what's what is your book? What do you have for us
2: yeah, so I chose "Wilderness in the American Mind" in the American Mind by Ro- Roderick Nash, and this is a book that I read oh, 10 plus years ago, and it really was illuminating to me. I was not a river keeper at the time; I was uh, just a college student trying to figure out what to do with my life, and I picked up this book on a whim and, and read it, and read it in a couple of days, and it was completely captivating. And it really just looks at how humans have perceived wilderness over time and how to get away from the now um, thought that that wilderness is something that is scary or not a place for humans or something to be looked at as over there and not something that's part of us. So it's it's a great read, it's got lots of good historical content, um, and really just Helps you think about the way we think about natural environments.
0: Cool. Thank you very much, right. Beth. What do you have for us?
4: Uh, mine's actually a two-parter. Um, back in 2006, I was a brand new mom with a premature baby, and I found the Motherhood Manifesto, which was this book that laid out a, a broad family and parenthood agenda. Um, and now, you know, t- I don't know, 12 years later. I have a 12-year-old, and there's a new book coming out May 1st. It's also by Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner. It's called uh, Keep Marching. And it takes those issues, and it provides an organizing guide, a cookbook of sorts. So here are the issues. Here are the stories about how these are affecting families across the country, and here's what you can do about it. Um, And, you know, for me, it was life-changing. It launched Moms Rising in North Carolina. It's made a huge difference uh, in lots of folks' lives, and I'm excited about what comes next.
0: That's phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that. Grady?
5: So the book um, I've been reading recently is a book by J. Drew Lanham, who is a professor, a distinguished professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University. It's a book called The Home Place, and it was published in 2016, but I've just learned about it this year. Uh, The subtitle is Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, and he chose the word colored there uh, very consciously. He he is reclaiming that word, um, and he's talking about the colors of nature in particular, and this book, uh, is, it's lyrical, it's beautifully written, has an incredibly strong sense of place. He grew up in Edgefield, South Carolina, near his grandparents and his parents. And so the book is full of his memories of them and their lives, his grandmother born in the 1800s who saw her first airplane a person flying above her in 1917 and then saw a man land on the moon in 1969, all in one lifetime. And it combines that with his experience of churches growing up, his experience of the natural environment and how their lives were intertwined with it. And what he's done, he's, he's a, um, he is a distinguished professor. He's published a lot of science. But the book is written very accessibly, and it's just really gorgeous.
0: Thank you, Grady. That sounds fantastic, and I absolutely can't wait to check that out. Thank you all for being here. This was a lovely discussion. I really appreciate it. We are unfortunately out of time. Um, I want to thank the WSHA production staff and all of our guests and and the people who participated in the interviews earlier. Uh, It's been um, a fantastic show for us today. I hope you tune in the fourth Tuesday of next month. You're listening to The Dirt on WSHA-FM.